this is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Sam. And today we are discussing the fourth book in our series on racism, which is called Discrimination and Disparities, and which was written by Thomas Sowell. So discrimination and disparities challenges believers in such one-factor explanations of economic outcome differences as discrimination, exploitation, or genetics. It is readable enough for people with no prior knowledge of economics, yet the empirical evidence with which it backs up its analysis spans the globe and challenges beliefs across the ideological spectrum. The point of the book is not to recommend some particular policy fix at the end, but to clarify why so many policy fixes have turned out to be counterproductive and to expose some seemingly invincible fallacies behind many counterproductive policies. So Sam, what's your first opinion on the book? I really like the book. It was, as someone who's a bit more scientific, I think it was my favorite book so far, the series of of Mm. like a lot of facts and sort of exploration of different sides of things. And not, it was was less, well, it's hard to know because of, you don't see all the different research he did, but it feels like it's less opinionated and less of Mm. him just talking about how he feels about something and more about like, oh, I went through the data and this is what I found which mm-hmm. uh, is nice for me. <laughs> so in that sense, yeah, I really liked it. Have, have you read the book Freakonomics? No, I've listened to the podcast a lot and I'm looking at the book right now and it's, it's been <laughs> on my list to read. It's very similar to this one oh, cool. uh, where, yeah, it's, it made me think I read Freakonomics years ago, but this book really reminded me of it. And so it was really good. And mm. um, indeed, I, I studied economics and so i really like the fact that it's backed most of its or all of its claims up with some solid facts and evidence as well yeah i love that counterintuitive um sort of statistics to what like just feels like the common belief like all the things mm-hmm. that people kind of think is true and are completely wrong and <laughs> what the actual state of the world is in reality compared mm-hmm. to like the, your mind just due to news and stuff yeah i think that's the the main conclusion of the book is that um doing things with the right intention to, don't necessarily make you get like the the correct outcomes or the outcomes you wanted. Mm, Exactly. I think that's like, if you want to summarize the book in one sentence, that would be it. But of course the the author goes way deeper into things. So yeah, let's start talking about some of the, the major points. So his first point is that not all disparities are due to discrimination. And so this point is well supported by economic theory and evidence. And so in this book, he, used, he provides a lot of examples how misattributing disparities to discrimination leads to misguided government interventions that actually make things worse, so which increase disparities between groups where they were intended to shrink them. And so in, in conclusion, he says that we should stop trying to intervene in markets we don't fully understand and allow the invisible hand of the market forces to reduce disparities to efficient levels in the long run. And And that part made me think about Taleb quite a lot. Like it's, it's exactly what Taleb says, where humans, we don't understand the world enough to um, start making high level decisions. And we should leave individuals to make their own choices because those are always going to be the most anti-fragile. 
Yeah, and he talks a lot also about kind of this sort of nature and how things don't just naturally appear equally everywhere. It is sort of mm. I think kind of just randomly kind of consolidate in different areas and like that's just like how mm-hmm. things are. Like it's not like a completely varied spread across everything. And so we often yeah. like attribute meaning to things that kind of maybe have no meaning and it's just sort of random collections of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he calls it the invisible fallacy. And so the mm-hmm. invisible fallacy is where we think that distribution of success across society should be should equally represent the distribution of different groups within society. Mm-hmm. And he shows that in nature, as well as throughout human history, that has almost never been the case. So there's always been like a very big concentration. To give an example, I think uh, what he said was 90, 90% of the hurricanes in the world happen on the in America. And like also 95% of lightning storms happen in Africa. And so in nature, he already shows that the distribution is very much skewed. So there's mm. like a like one major place where things happen and then there's a long tail. And he also shows that it's it's the case in a lot of societies, human societies as well. Yeah, definitely. And he makes a really interesting point. This is at the end, but he talks about how communism sort of was like a brilliant example of people trying to get involved and make things equal as possible on the assumption that if everyone has equality, everyone will do better overall. But actually, not only are there more billionaires per capita in America, but there's also just the average level of the poor people is much higher than like it was for the people in like communist state of Russia at the time. Mm-hmm. And so actually trying to sort of force it actually ends up making things a lot worse and leaving people to sort of actually like fight for themselves ends up meaning they fight a lot harder and they make more for the overall nation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really made that point quite well. He's, he's very libertarian mm. in, his, in his thinking. So, so yeah, I think he talks quite a lot about discrimination and I found his framework of discrimination quite interesting. So he distinguishes three kinds of discrimination. And so he starts with discrimination 1A. And so discrimination 1A is discrimination based on known facts about the individual. So for example, let's say that I'm, I'm an employer and I'm looking to give certain people a job. And so you, Sam, you come and apply. And I, I know that you are actually an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. If being an alcoholic would make, is bad for, for my company. So if, if, if people at work in my company would be very counterproductive if they were an alcoholic, then I have a reason not to hire you. So I would, I would discriminate against you because I know that you are an alcoholic. Yeah, especially if you're like in a factory or something, you might be a danger to people that you're working with or you might end up making products that are like faulty and so dangerous to the people that buy them and that kind of stuff was the example that he gives. And I thought it was quite a good example besides just, as in, besides just general alcoholic behavior being a bit erratic, but, but like actual so direct outcomes anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think most people will agree that it makes sense to like, it's morally allowed to discriminate on known facts about the individual. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you to agree as well. Yeah, certainly that sort of makes sense. Um, if, yeah, <laughs> I feel like there should be ways to like help people stop having these problems. Yeah, yeah, but of course. But anyway, otherwise, yeah, I mean, I certainly uh, wouldn't be hiring them myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right. yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he talks about discrimination 1B. So we had 1A, which is dis- discrimination of the individual. And dis- discrimination 1B is, for example, I'm the employer. And I know that people that have blonde hair have a 50% chance of being an alcoholic and people with brown hair, for example, only have 1% chance of being an alcoholic. Mm. And so Sam applies to my company. Sam has blonde hair. 
and there's other people who have brown hair that also apply to my company. And so in this case, I, um, as an employer, would discriminate against Sam by saying, okay, he's blonde, so I'm not going to hire him because he has a high chance of being an alcoholic. And I'm going to prefer people that are, have brown hair, brown haired, uh, because those have a way lower chance of being an alcoholic. And this is discrimination 1B. And so it's discrimination against the group that a person belongs to, given statistical evidence on that group. And so there, I mean, I think that, again, most people will agree that it's still correct to use this kind of discrimination or it makes sense to use this kind of discrimination. Maybe it's not really fair. Mm, yeah, I would say it doesn't make sense to sort of do it on purpose, but it happens naturally when you just don't have time and you're going through a bunch of CVs. If you don't, you don't really want to spend all the time interviewing the people with blonde hair just to work out if they've got, if they have had this problem, if you're like, well, they're probably going to have it anyway. I've got all these other CVs for people with brown hair. I may as well just interview them because it just saves time and resources and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. you wouldn't maybe want to actively bother, but you would, yeah, yes. And you wouldn't be against a blonde person that turned up and, and turns out it was awesome, but it, you just probably wouldn't put the time and investment to check kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then the, so that's the second type of discrimination and the third type of discrimination is discrimination too and that is me as an employer saying okay sam is blonde and i don't like blonde people because blonde people are stupid so i'm not gonna hire sam yeah which is like traditional racism kind of thing exactly exactly yeah. and so these are three types of discrimination the three types of discrimination according to uh soul and yeah i find it interesting to to put it like into some kind of framework where you can start thinking about it Mm. Um, and he gives some really, really interesting examples about how policies intended to help people being discriminated against actually had the um, adverse effect. And so I think that the best example of that is the fact that in America, young black males are more likely to have criminal records. Mm. And so we can, have a, we, we can have a discussion about why that is, but it's, it's just a fact. And so, and some social justice activists hoping to improve job outlooks for young black males have called for the prohibition of individual background checks. And so these individual background checks are a form of discrimination 1A. So uh, there are on the person itself, we're going to do a background check and check if they have a criminal record. And so what this prohibition actually resulted in was that employers um, were hiring less young black males. Because since they cannot perform a background check, they resort back to discrimination 1B, which where they make an analysis of the group to which the people belong to. And they say, okay, the percentage of young black males with a criminal record is higher. So I'm not even going to start looking at these, these people and just like not hire them at all. And so this is one example where a policy which had a good intention was actually negative um, or had the inverse um, effect. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good example. And it just makes you like, <laughs> yeah, the whole intervening thing doesn't help at all. Yeah. And so it's actually also proven that companies that are perfor- allowed to perform background checks hire more young black males than other companies. And so again, here it shows that the market forces work better to eliminate discrimination than policies. And this is going to be a common theme throughout the book. Mm. Yeah. So just leading on for your market forces, he asked an interesting question around why isn't there like more equality in terms of the market always wants to sort of have like the optimal sort of place. And so market forces should mean that 
people who don't discriminate will have access to more talent and more diversity, which is like the whole reason why they're, they're saying it's bad and like companies should be doing it. And so like, if the efficient market is true, it, the companies that do embrace diversity would be performing much higher because they'd have like a better, a, a bigger talent pool and like more diversity going on. So why hasn't it happened yet? Is like a kind of a, a really interesting question. It's a counter argument that that wasn't uh, talked about in the book, right? Mm, yeah, I think that was someone else's opinion, but like, I think I think it's quite interesting to discuss because <laughs> it yeah, does yeah, yeah. The, the thing the point that he's making. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the examples he gives, and I cannot give the exact numbers right now, but what he said that was that the unemployment uh, rate of black young black males was going down significantly between, I think, 1920, 1920 and the 1960s. Hmm. And so in, 19, in the 1960s, I think it was Lyndon B. Johnson, like the American president, who started the war on poverty and who started applying a, a lot of different policies to help the poor. And since then, we've actually seen a sharp rise again in, in unemployment, especially in black groups in black societies. And so I think what the author would argue there is that you're saying that the free market would solve it. And your question is, okay, but why hasn't the free market solved it yet? And I think his answer would be that the free market in the past 50 years hasn't had the full chance to to solve these, these discriminations and to work its natural forces. To give one example, he talks about the minimum wage policies. And so he says that uh, minimum wage policies, which which means that you increase the minimum wage or you say, okay, you cannot hire someone for less than, let's say, $10 an hour, have actually had a negative effect on the, the poorest social groups because they are usually very inexperienced. And because of minimum wage uh, loss, some people are just cannot cannot find a job because their value added because of their inexperienced, inexperiencedness is lower than the minimum wage. So they wouldn't make the employer any money. I think um, pure capitalism is it's not sacred. And it's, I think what's happening in the US is one of the examples in which we can say that it is like, if you let capitalism go wild, you get these types of problems where education in the US is like sky high and the same with healthcare. healthcare. So you cannot privatize everything. And I think the US is, is an example of that. But on the other hand, if you want to use policies to remove discrimination or to make uh, a country better you have to like you have to think really hard about how you approach it yeah you have to really measure what the outcomes are and make sure you're always going towards the right thing and sort of improve on that rather than just sort of doing things that sound good and that people can agree on and and not just keep on it doing it because it sounds good and yeah yeah and and I fully 100% agree with you because this is one of the problems that I had and this is one of the struggles I had in the, in the past the past books we read it is like whenever something sounds very inclusive and very nice and very positive people will like automatically support it yeah yeah and 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 if you don't support something that sounds nice if you say like but like what if it doesn't work like the moment you start questioning these initiatives suddenly you're like against them um and you're not a nice person or you're not a good person yeah, or you're yeah. not an inclusive person and so that's why i i i think i i like the book more than mm. i should <laughs> very objectively is because it it's it helped me like understand that <laughs> yeah it's it's okay to it's okay to 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 be against or to question policies that have that sound very good mm. yeah like the whole the quotas thing I kind of really like because I think there should just be more people 
in like women and, and sort of minorities with opportunities to be in heads of power but then you don't want to force it in the sense that if it's in the back of your mind that this person is just like a diversity hire or something then maybe you, you you're never going to think that they actually have the skills and like they should get there because they have the skills and prove it and so if the person's like mm. in the board meeting and stuff but like actually all of these their authority is undermined because everyone just thinks they're there for the diversity hire like there's pointless having them there and it mm. kind of makes things worse so yeah it's a really confusing one and so you can't sort of force some of these things as much as you may you think you can mm -hmm. yeah and i think again if you just leave things as they are without imposing any things i think in the long run they'll turn out the best way for them and so to give an example of that i've recently saw a meme about um, countries that have a, have had a very bad response to COVID-19 and countries that have a, that had a very successful response to COVID-19 mm. and their leaders. And so if you look at the countries that have a, like a significantly bad response to COVID-19, they all have like these, these guys as leaders, these men yeah. um, who are very like, you know, it's Putin, it's Trump, uh, yeah, it's, the it's these guys in, in South America, yeah. exactly, who are very macho and, and very manly, yeah. and et cetera. And then if you look at the countries that have a very good response, they all have, all have female leaders. Mm. And so I think, this shows that maybe women and and and, and women leaders are, are better at managing these kinds of crisis than men. Yeah, and so, <laughs> for me, honestly, I think if you look at that, you might want to consider voting for a woman uh, next time there's a new election cycle, because they've shown that because of their compassion, they're better at handling these types types of crises. Mm -hmm. And so I think. If it's true that women are better at men than this, then after a while, I think we'll see that men, that women will actually be the ones who are leading countries mm. because they're just better. Yeah. So I think uh, I'm, I'm quite libertarian in that regard. I would say we don't need quotas. Just prove prove that you're better at this. And I think it's the same in, within companies. If you have a have a, a company that has a full female or, or a high percentage of females in very executive positions mm. and the company performs very better, it means that the company will, will grow market size. It will become an example. Other other companies will start copying it because they show that they have something. And then after a while, you see that if women are indeed better at this, if you just leave uh, companies B, you don't instill any quotas, then after a while, you'll see that women will be at the top more or even most. But I certainly think like the sort of the VCs and sort of the, the agendas that are to kind of just promote women and give them more opportunities like are a sort of a good thing and to like help them mm. grow into being people that deserve like positions of power and CEOs and stuff. Absolutely. I actually heard uh, from my girlfriend from a new recent uh, policy that for like specific jobs at the, the bottom of like the, the job requirements, they say, okay, we actively encourage women and people of minorities to apply. Mm. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they will get like an easier time getting through the process and they'll have yeah, an yeah. easier time getting hired, it's, but they're just encouraged. And yeah, I think yeah. that is like one really great way to, to, to help minorities. Yeah. Okay. It hasn't come up a lot in the books we've read so far, but like the way you word a policy can make it very like biased. It's in, it's in a bit more in, in invisible women. Um, as in, if you sort of say your hiring policy, but you can make it sound very like orientated for like a male world. And it just like discourages mm. so many women compared to mm. if you just word it slightly differently i have yeah i have a point that i'd like to discuss and it's it's something i've been realizing more and more of over the the past like the all the books we read is that that you know facts don't tell the whole story and you can 
you can make a case for pretty much anything as long as you pick the right, the correct facts. Yeah. And so we'll, so we'll also make the point in this book. And actually, I looked up some reviews on this book. And there's, there's some people who are saying that he also cherry picks his facts, you mm. know, to make the points that he makes in the book, which is probably true. And so it, it's clear that you can prove almost anything and say, okay, it's fully based on facts, you know, whatever you're proving. And so he displays, he gives some examples in his book about, for example, how, how people are using income and household income to prove that there's so much disparity between the poor and the rich. And so he says, uh, for example, I think what the number three throw up is the richest quintile. So 20% of households earn 10 times as much as the poorest 20% of households. And so there the word households is very important because if you look at how many people are inside those quintiles, so inside those 20%, actually the poorest 20% of households contains 40 million people and the richest uh, 20% of households contain 69 million people. So it's like, it's almost twice as many people. So it makes sense that they earn more because they are more. So they have more people so they can earn more. And so there mm. it's, it's, he shows, it displays that using these words like incomes, like households, you can really tell whatever story you want. Yeah. Yeah. You know, similar point around like um, mortgages and it was like, there's a lot of data in news articles around sort of it being so much harder for black people to get mortgages. And I think 49% of black people ended up with subprime mortgages, whereas only 13% of white people did or something. But then in terms of like the mortgage application process and like refusals, it's sort of like, I think black people like three times more likely to be refused to white people. But then it was about the same ratio again for white people compared to Asians, but like they never reported that part of it because like that wasn't such a new story. And it was more like just trying to say that like mortgages were racist against black people. Hmm. And they didn't sort of say, oh, by the way, actually like... <laughs> They also have this preference for Asians because they seem to be like reliable and kind of around time and stuff. It's just news grabbing and like attention sort of grabbing statistics as opposed to actual like the full truth of what's going on. Kind of make you stop and fully understand, which uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's always never a good thing. Yep, always never. Is that a bad use of words? Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. I think uh, your, your points came across very well. Thanks. <laughs> um, so any other takeaways from your side? I guess the uh, only other thing I made like proper notes on was sort of back to what we started on was like, well, I guess like misreporting of data and the way things aggregate. So he says there's a lot of morally neutral factors such as crop failures, bad weather, birth order, geographic settings demographic cultural reasons that don't really get reported as to why something may be unequal, but things that stir moral outrage, it's just we're saying that like grab your news lines and stuff mm. do get reported all the time. And so mm. as we've been sort of summarizing the last sort of 20 minutes, it's like, we just don't have like a proper view of the world because of all the wrong thing gets reported. And we don't really mm. think about all the other stuff that, that factors. And just because yes. we can't really put like a proper reason behind it that like, grabs you then like, it just doesn't really matter to us and we don't think about it so we're just quite uninformed mm -hmm. and yeah basically the book just tells you to be more informed <laughs> rather than just sort of going with like your gut and feelings and things as if it's probably wrong based on the news 
Have you read the book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century? Yes. By uh, Harari? One of the points he makes there is you should find a very good and reliable news source. Mm. And I think this book illustrates it. I mean, if you're not paying for the news that you're getting, you're the product. Yeah, right? yeah. And I think this is an important realization for everyone. Like the news as we see it through social media is extremely biased and they just want to like, you know, use very like clickbaity titles to get you on their websites for you to see the ads so they can make some money off you. And so it's very important to, I think he, he says that you got to pay for your news. If you're not paying for your news, you're the product and you're not going to learn anything. And I think the point that Taleb makes is that you should like, you don't really need the news. And I actually tend to agree with Taleb. I've stopped trying to like read news sites and stuff or even watch the news or pay too much attention to whatever I see on Facebook just because it's all so clickbaity and doesn't tell the whole story. And if something is really, really important, it'll find its way to you anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard one. I um, Yeah, isn't like all the newspapers mostly are pretty, pretty awful. And I mean, mm. I try to read The Guardian probably, but it's still very like biased and it's hard to really know what you're not reading properly and mm -hmm. I mean, even the bbc which doesn't have adverts and it's just paid for by like taxpayers money like it's like the most trustable news source probably in the uk but it's still not always perfect and mm -hmm. ultimately each article is written by one person and reviewed by a few other people and they may well have a bit of an agenda even if they're trying like move it and, and even science as in like most published science is still done by people who maybe wanted to prove something. And there's a reason why so many more papers prove stuff rather than disprove stuff. And it's, it's like, it's just a huge problem in the world. This is the way we pay attention mm -hmm. to things. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very confusing one of basically you can't actually find out what is true from by just like basic looking unless you go like fully, fully into it. And it's a confusing one with history as well as in, you can't really know what things were like because you only get like the reports of what was sort of told. So it's like history is written by the people who are victorious, etc. So very interesting. I mean, if you just think about like crimes that happened like three months ago that we can't really ever really know like what happened kind of thing. And <laughs> how the hell do we know what happened a hundred years ago and these kind of stuff. And it's really fascinating that someone who's traveled lots, just how different the world is when you arrive at these different places compared to what you hear. And, it's funny. I think for me, I think I'm, I'm really happy we read this type of book within our um, series on racism because I think that's probably one of the key things to get to know, understand a subject where that's not, not purely scientific. Mm. It is to like try and look at it from both sides. And so I, I've learned and I've, I've, I've come to a realization that in, if we're talking about racism or in general, like different outcomes between people, there's people who attribute that to um, purely nature and so we say okay it's this like this is like the eugenics movement we say okay there's like inferior race and superior race and they say it's all attributable to um, nature and then the whole the other side of the spectrum is it is all environment it is all nurture and if there's a different outcome for different types of people there is that is always attributable attributable to oppression from one group over another group so the rich over the poor or white over black etc etc and so there's like this spectrum. And I feel the first three books that we read on racism leans way more to the, the second part. So where it's, mm. it's mostly oppression slash nurture and we should fix that. So it's always useful to try and look at it from both sides, try and hear people who are 
on on the two two sides of this discussion. I think a similar discussion can be found in in many other places or many other topics. Yeah, definitely. I I thought the I can't think of it. White. I put the word palace in my mind. That's not the word I'm looking for. But we read supremacy. Um, no, white fragility. Ah, fragility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was quite interesting from a psychology perspective of just how people are not open to hear about their own problems and stuff that sort of is maybe like their own cognitive dissonances and how to like break this down to, the, to people was, was really interesting. Although sort of it did have, still have like quite an emotive sort of agenda around like trying to tell you that you're always going to be a racist and, and these things and maybe could have been a bit more sort of level whereas mm -hmm. like the other two were, were still really interesting and good books i'm very glad we read them but they definitely mm -hmm. were sort of very much like emotion-based writing and mm -hmm. the authors were definitely looking for things that sort of supported their arguments in that sense mm -hmm. although they were still really good books i, I don't want to like discredit them at all mm -hmm. cool all right should we give a quick score and key takeaway for this book yeah so i think i'd probably go with um an eight and i think my takeaway has definitely been that yeah the news doesn't show you what you think it is people do uh, write things based on their agendas and policy is is not always useful which is definitely like three different takeaways and so i, I would definitely just go with like the policy one like i think you should just be informed which mm -hmm. i guess is like all the different things I said were saying were around like just being more informed. And I think whatever you do should always be a bit more informed and just have some data behind it. And like the importance of setting like metrics that actually measure what it is that you're trying to outcome rather than going with like emotive based things that you can just agree on because it sounds good. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to be like almost exactly the same uh, as you. So I'm also going to give it a date. And for me, I think personally, what I like most is that I now feel strengthened in, uh, I feel better about sometimes disagreeing with people that say, okay, this is, this is true because it sounds good. You know, mm. I've always had a problem with that. And so now I, <laughs> I have a book that supports me and it's not because it sounds good that it's, it works or it, it is good. You know, it has a, the, yeah, the correct, yeah. the correct outcome. Mm. And I think it helps you to be not racist as in, if you are going to try and implement a policy that sort of makes the world less racist, but it doesn't actually achieve its goal just because it sounds good that there's no point in doing it. Whereas mm. if you're going to be in the room and be like, okay, actually, how are we going to make this really happen? And like, what are we trying to achieve here? And then sort of finding the best way to do that, that actually makes the world a better place. So mm. I think that's really good. Mm -hmm. Although mm -hmm. just presenting that in a way that makes you not sound racist at the time is the um, thing as in, if you were saying like, hey, we should be checking people for whether they're like alcoholics or like have a criminal record up front, it does sound a bit racist. So you need to sort of come back with like, well, there was a study that showed that actually trying to implement this policy made it worse. And so we should think about how we do this in a bigger way rather than just doing it because it sounds good. Mm -hmm. um, which is nice to have like some of these studies in your like knowledge so you can like quote it and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, fully agree. All right. I think uh, that rounds up the episode. Our next book in this, our series on racism, and I think it's going to be our last, is going to be Nonviolent uh, Communication written by Marshall Rosenberg. And I think it's going to help us be able to communicate about these topics. We'll see you next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. As you know, we are doing this to try and help you get smarter. Well, 
I have another project for podcast listeners just like you who want to be smart. Nico and I learned so much from reading the same things together and discussing them, and I wanted there to be a tool that made it easy for anyone to listen to the same podcasts and books together with their friends. So I'm building the app Syncify, which does just that. It connects you with your friends in the app, listen to the same things at the same time, or create shared playlists and work through them at your own pace. You can share comments and highlights of your favourite bits and become smarter by seeing what your friends think around the same content that you enjoy. As a bonus, it also helps with your mental health and reduces isolation. Personally, I hate publishing my life on social media, which I find all rather antisocial, and I don't go out of my way to phone a friend for no reason other than the fact I feel lonely. But I do love doing things with other people, and having my friends listen to the same things is, is really awesome. I mean, I used to speak to Nico like once a year before we started this book club together, and now we talk all the time because we're just doing something together. So do yourself a favour and sign up for the Syncify app at syncifyapp.com and I really hope it helps thanks a lot for listening if you enjoyed the show or learned anything new be sure to share it with your friends and I just can't tell you how great it is if you were to happen to leave a review on iTunes these really do help quite a lot if you have any questions or books that you'd like us to read feel free to reach out to us through the website wiserpod.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn. And just keep loving and keep learning, and ideally, keep listening. Big love from Sam and Nico. And the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Wiser.